Every person has a story, but not everyone has a place to tell it. I'm Frank Swoboda. I've interviewed amazing people all over the planet. I want you to meet them. This week, the most interesting person you've never heard of is... My name is Julie Garcia, and I am the most interesting person you've never heard of because I take care of 600 people experiencing homelessness on a plot of land I do not own. Julie Garcia, thanks for being... Thanks for having me. ...on the MIP podcast. You are one of the most interesting people I've ever met, I gotta say, for sure. Um, so just a little background, like, we I've met you because we were producing... Housing and Help, which is this web series on how to solve homelessness that Gavin Cooley, the C- former CFO of the city of Spokane, is hosting. Um, and we've been working on now a year, and we've come out with two episodes of the day that we filmed this. By the way, congratulations. I just want to toast, because you are the 20th podcast we've Yay. recorded. I don't, I don't think this will be the 20th one that comes out, but because you may come a little earlier than some of the other ones we've done, because this is such a, an important topic. But... Um, you know, we couldn't we couldn't not have a series about homelessness and not feature Camp Hope, right? True. I mean, it's just exactly what has really fueled a lot of this stuff. And I have to say, when I went there, I was skeptical of you. Yeah. I told you this. And I was like, I don't all I know is what I see on the news, yep. you know, and the the snippets of that. And our, <laughs> our, our goal for the podcast or the podcast, <laughs> the whole for the for the housing and help series was um Really, to try to not have it be um, the three, three, you know, three minute piece or the short story, but a longer piece, so you can really learn all of it. Yep. Because um, what we discovered, you know, in, in all the people that we've interviewed through this process of, of the housing and health um, series, going to Houston, talking to you, talking to Chris Patterson for Low for Good, talking to you know all the people that are not politicians. Because that's one of the rules we made. Is it's, that's not we want experts yep. on the ground, whoever that is, um, professors and, and everybody that's sort of studying this issue. We really wanted to, you know, kind of dive in and, and make sure that everyone that we talked to would tell us kind of the most important things, you know, about this. And when we, you know, when I when I brought when we talked to everybody, what I've really discovered about this is that I would say. Even the people that you think are the most opposed to how to solve this problem, if if you got them in a room, they would they would agree to about eighty percent of it, seventy to eighty percent. I agree. Right. Yeah. And what we see on the news is the other thirty, yeah. the other twenty, the other twenty to well, thirty. Well, the other twenty are real loud. Yeah, they're real loud, and that's what you know makes sells our time. So we're not getting paid that way to yeah. do this story. And so we're focusing on the 70 to 80, kind of where there's agreement. Yeah. Um, and, and we're betting that people will watch that and kind of listen to it. So I'm really grateful that you said yes to us filming there. Um, I'm, I'm glad you liked it and watched it. I loved you know? it. Um, that means a lot. Um, but I, I have to say I was skeptical. So, you know, when I go back and look at this, I, one of the first questions I wanted to ask you the whole time is, um, Tell me all the stuff people say about you. Oh. Like, this is your chat. Give me the laundry list. Well, Julie is. Yes. This is what you hear. Okay. Now, I get called a lot of names and I get probably get more death threats than the president. But. What do they say? Julie is that what? I'm, I'm an enabler. Mostly. That's most of it. I am the reason there's homelessness in Spokane. I'm trying to make money on these folks. There's. 
so many lists of things. And some of the things that they say are true. I used to not be a good person. I mean, that's why I understand the folks that... That are. That are. That are in this situation. Because I found myself at 37, four kids and a single mom with a lifetime of really bad decisions. And in a marriage that had fallen apart years and years ago, I was in an abusive situation. My kids had trauma and my life was just really a wreck. Mm. And I got sick and I found out that I was going to die. And that changed my life. I needed to be able to fix the things that were wrong and in turn be able to teach people how to do the same thing. So I clawed my way out of that situation and I got to a better situation. And as I continued to heal, I started to go back to where I started. And going back to where I started was literally on the streets in Spokane with the folks that I had made life with. They knew them. So I took all my food stamps and I bought all the peanut butter and jelly and bread I could make and stood out in front of House of Charity and handed out sandwiches. So where did, where did you grow up? Where did How did you... Give me your path to Spokane. So I grew up in Colorado in a small town, Grand Junction. Oh, I know Grand yep. Junction. Yeah. So I w- grew up there. I actually grew up in the city next to it, which is Fruita. Uh-huh. Population 1,500. I was 1500. in two years ago. Yep. Population 1,500. And, one, and like the best mountain biking spot in the country, it right? It sure is. Yeah. Fruita's but, a cool little town. <laughs> I grew up... Um, in a predominantly white neighborhood until I was, after I was 18, I'd never really seen a person of color other than my family. And where I lived, we were seasonal workers. So seasonal workers came in, they worked, and then they went home. My family did not. My family stayed. My grandma and my mother, they're the youngest. My grandma had 15 children, so my mom's the youngest wow. of 15. Wow. And they taught me community. We didn't have any money, but they taught me the value of community. And we had homeless people that lived there. I just didn't know they were homeless. I thought they were just our neighbors that struggled because people would stay on our couch or would help a family out or whatever. And we had very little money. I mean, my dad drove a truck and my mom worked at the grocery store in the pharmacy. So it's not like we had a ton of money and there's four of us kids and my parents in a town that wasn't designed for people of color. Mm -hmm. So for most of my life, every day of my life, somebody told me to go back to my own country. And as a young child, I didn't understand going back to my own country because I was born here. This is my your country. Yeah, this is where my mom was born here. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know what they spoke of. When I started realizing how people experiencing homelessness had the same kind of treatment, I mean, it's a little different, but it still feels the same. So I started taking my experiences and trying to compare them to people experiencing homelessness. Like, how does this feel? Instead of, have I ever been an addict on the street? I have not. I've never done drugs in my life. Have I ever felt despair? Have I ever self-medicated that didn't include drugs. And I have for my whole life with gambling or men or all kinds of other things. Mm -hmm. I still self-medicated. I also learned about ACEs scores and I took their test and I have eight of 10. I'm like, oh, that makes some sense. So explain that. So the ACEs scores is adverse childhood trauma. 
So when a young person gets in trouble in our city or in most cities, the first thing they do is an ACE score test. And an ACE score is 10 questions that scientifically they use to predetermine if you're going to have issues with addiction struggles, basically. And by all statistics and all science, I should be on the street of Spokane as well. So my goal was so next. Get, what, what are some of those? So, um, so I'm were your, was your primary parent in prison? Did you grow up in a home where you were food insecure? All of those questions, because before the age of four, we actually learn all the skills we're going to use throughout our life to deal with emotional situations. That's a true fact. So what happened to you before four is really where you got to look at early childhood trauma. And then what, how was your living situation as you were growing up? Those are all predetermining factors on how you're going to process because trauma is not a thing. Trauma is a reaction. Trauma is a way to deal with the thing you're trying to deal with. Right. So you, you, by all, but by some, some way didn't, didn't end up, you did end up on the street. So I've never been on the streets, but I have been without a home and I wanted to know what was the difference. What did I do differently that didn't cause me to sleep under the bridge. And it really wasn't me at all. It was my community. Right. It was my support system. Even when I didn't love me, they loved me. You had safety nets yes. to catch it. I had help. And the folks that are struggling with homelessness now don't have hope. And they don't have help to get out of the situation. And if you're talking about generational homelessness, you're talking about somebody who doesn't even know what a home is supposed to look like. You probably wouldn't feel comfortable there anyway. No, they don't understand. It's like taking you and moving you into the camp. Right. You don't know how things work. You don't know what you're supposed to do next. No. You don't know what that's supposed to look like. Neither do they. So when you take them out of the camp and you stick them directly into home and don't provide anything for them, they don't know what to do. So... <laughs> I, I, you, one of the most moving parts of the um, next episode that hasn't come out yet, episode three, which is the second part of Camp Hope, is, is a conversation that we have a, with you about your daughter. Yeah. Can you tell me where is she today? How, <coughs> what that's taught you? you know, my daughter. That story. My daughter is housed. She still struggles with addiction. I raised my seven-year-old granddaughter <coughs> for my own self. And what I recommend to most people who are too close to the person experiencing homelessness is you have to create boundaries and boundaries are what protect me and protect myself in heading into situations where normally somebody wouldn't go. And one of my boundaries for her is I can't love her sober. That is not something that I am able or capable to do. I've tried for a lot of years. You can't love her sober. No. I can't make her want. Oh, I see. Treatment. You can't love her so much that she be, that she that she, she wants to become sober. sober. I get you. Jail hasn't done that. You for could her. love her if she were sober. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you can't make her sober. No, and right. jail never did it for her. She's been through all the court systems, drug court, community court. She's been through them all, and she's manipulated her way through them because she truly didn't want to become sober yet. And I always say yet, because I don't believe there's anyone who wants to be an addict. I just think that addiction is a choice to begin with. You, you get the choice to use drugs. 
Whatever your reason is for using them, it doesn't really matter. But once it happens, it's a disease. We have to treat it that way. We have to stop making it a stigma. Instead, treat it for how it is. Because with a disease, we can treat it if we address it that way. And with these folks, it's the same way. Same with my daughter. So she has to want that. And at this point, she doesn't want that yet. I know when we talked in the, the interview that we did, you, you mentioned that it kind of snuck up on you. You didn't really see it or you didn't want to see it. I had no clue. And I don't know if that's because I didn't want to or I didn't. But you, I was very naive. What do you think? Maybe I didn't want to. She was. You might have you felt it. Yeah. She was two weeks away from graduating high school as a 4.0 student. I never imagined no. that drugs would be her next step but she met a boy and yep. in two weeks i didn't know the person that lived in my house anymore wow. so it was it's that fast addiction takes you especially heroin and that's what she's addicted to heroin mm. it spirals your life out of control so very fast you don't even have a time to breathe in between you're just one day you're fine and one day you're living on the streets and there has to be some safety nets in place. We, we don't have those safety nets because we could stop people from, even now, we still have people that relapse, that we assist, True. but they don't spiral their life all the way down to living on the street anymore because they have some skills. And that's really what, and how you help addiction is you create a life that you don't have to use for. So I know, you know, I know a lot about Camp Hope because we've done this yeah. series and, and visited with you and kind of learned it all and did the studies and looked at your numbers and you guys do incredible intake, right? With yeah. all the all the people there that are, I mean, this thing we could talk for hours about that and and I don't want to kind of repeat the episode, but essentially Camp Hope is it started as a protest. Yeah, it was a peaceful protest on the steps of City Hall. And how did you get that? Did you rally that? Did they rally that? How did that? How did it happen? How did that protest happen? Both. Both both things happened. Okay. Um, we didn't have anywhere to take anybody. So so what led to the what led to it? Because 168 people set up tents in front of City Hall last December, a year ago. Yep. Almost. Um, and and we're making a protest. What what who came up with that idea? So in 2019, the original Camp Hope happened, and the way that warming centers got started in 2019 is because Alfredo stood out in front of City Hall and said, we're staying here till a warming center is open. There's nowhere to take these. Who's that? He he was a homeless advocate that had been doing basically what I'm doing forever. Mm. And the same with the same results. Nobody listened. It didn't change anything. And he just got fed up and he was formerly homeless. So he understood, he was lived experience, and basically he chained himself to City Hall, and they opened up warming centers. So in the spirit of that, in the same situation we found ourselves in in 2021, same thing. So you you were giving out peanut butter jelly sandwiches. Yeah. Where and and when did that start happening? Give me a time frame. So in 2018, I started handing out peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and it kind of escalated quickly because I realized people were hungry. Yeah. And then I realized they were cold. 
And so then I started bringing clothes and blankets and I exhausted all the options in my neighborhood. <laughs> like my friends were tired. They didn't have these any more stuff to give us. These people that were out in front of uh, House of Charity or downtown in that neighborhood anyway, which, where my office used to be. Why, why, why were they not going in? There was no beds. It was closed. They were full. It was full. That's the way it is in it the winter here. There's it's full. No, there's been no consistent beds. So today the Trent Shelter opened. And this is the first time. As we time, filmed this, right. Yep. This is the first time since December of last year that there were women's beds available. Wow. Today, tonight will be the first time. And this is, again, these are beds that are, that are sort of in an open area. This is, a, yeah. these are not, you don't have your own. Oh no, these you, are shelters. This is mats so, on the floor so and cots. Mats on the floor and cots. And Didn't you, get matter. Your own, you get your own cot and, and that, that's all you kind of get. Yep. But that's. They didn't even have those available for women. We've had a few beds open here and there at Hope House, but there's no beds for women. You cannot today, or as of yesterday, you couldn't walk to a shelter and say, I need help, and they would let you in. Wow. Not if you're a woman. And that's been going on for a year? Since December, since we started that almost, protest. Almost December. Yeah. So, so as you're giving out those sandwiches and you're giving out food and you're realizing then people are starting to talk to you, right? Yeah. So I'm and you, hearing you just stories. get to know, you get to know everybody. You're getting, yeah. I just get to know their name. And as soon as you start building that relationship, then those warming centers that Alfredo opened begin to open there mm. in 2019. And what we realized is they didn't have any food, <laughs> their shelters, their mats on the floor, but nobody's feeding them. Right. It's so weird. Like you would right. think that that would make sense that right. there would be, so there was no food. So we rallied together a lot of folks yeah. and we started creating mills and that mills turned into a hundred thousand mills served over six months, 300 every night. We never missed one night in those six months of feeding people. And that's where I earned my respect with people experiencing homelessness because we weren't allowed to serve food in the warming centers. We had to serve it on the street in front of it. So who's, whose idea was it to go to City Hall then and, and sort of make this protest? Because you were making a case that basically, hey, there's nowhere for us to go. We're homeless, don't want to be. We'd like some help here. Probably mine. It would probably yeah. be me. who, Because yeah. I had been going to City Council and explaining this okay. and, expl and getting nowhere, really. No one was listening. No beds were opening. Like we were, were shutting down. Were they taking down. it seriously or were they not <laughs> listening? Or, you know. No, they just think that they disappear if we close our eyes. So they're like, oh, well, there's not that many people. There's shelter beds available. So they weren't available. actually believing that there was that many homeless. No, and they weren't believing that there were shelter beds available because the administration of our city kept saying, there's beds, they just won't go. Wow. So we started digging into there's beds and they won't go and realized, no, there's not beds. There isn't beds. Yes, there's some children's beds, but that doesn't, those are barriered because an individual can't go to them. And yep, there may be some at the Union Gospel Mission, but you've got to be sober. And at that time you needed to do, have $2. So how do you get those things? Especially if you're coming from the street, you, they can't meet the barriers. So we began to dig into those numbers. We've ran since then eight warming centers or cooling centers community funded no no money from the city just wow. the community pitching in churches willing to let us use their space buildings willing to let these folks in and we've basically been doing that for the last four years just bailing out the city because of the lack of shelter beds so your focus has been sort of laser on i'm just trying to get people fed and warm and, and not and die. I just don't want to see another 215 people die in my city like did last year. So 
when we talked to you, it was 160. It's now 215 that have died in the last. What, what's so, what's that number? It's 215 since the last count. So since 160 last year, there's way more than 160, but we can confirm 160. Wow. That's the rest are since then. I, I lost two today. Today? Yeah. At Camp Hope? No, not at Camp Hope, but... People when, you know. Yeah, people who have experienced homelessness. One had just recently got housed, and she didn't know how to handle being housed. Hmm. So she overdosed this morning. Yeah, that's the other part of this, right? The transition back and all that. Well, and there's so much. It's so complicated and yet so easy. So houses right. solve homelessness. There's not another way to solve homelessness if that's really your goal is solving and when the you say, homelessness. When you say a house, it could be anything from a tiny home, just something that I can shut the door. Something that has a door. Something that has a door when I can keep my, my valuables yeah. and keep my possessions. So that's what solves homelessness. If you want It's not the solve, only thing. No. And, and that's why we called our show, our series, Housing and Help. Yep. It also needs help. You have to have help. help. Houses by themselves will not solve homelessness. And, and you're the help right now. Yeah. We're the help. That's, that's it. They need peer support. What they really need is what we do. And what we do is we grab their hand and we walk them through homelessness. We stand by their side. We explain what needs to be explained. We help them understand. And along the way, we're teaching them. We're teaching them what's needed of them, what the society expects of them, what it's supposed to look like, and how can we heal whatever part of you caused you to be in a tent on the side of a freeway. So after a certain amount of time, I don't know how long it was, three months, something like that, you guys are at 168 people camping right in front of City Hall, yeah. right, right, right by the runners. Right the door, yep. Yeah, you're all right there and you're, you're hanging out there a long time. And then eventually they said, okay, you guys are out of here. Yeah, so they, code enforcement key, come in and they put 24 hours. Which notices. is the police? Yeah, City police. the police. It's code enforcement and the police. I was there. So I saw them. It's imminent of a sweep. The city says that they didn't sweep in front of City Hall. And okay. that's technically true. They did not sweep it. But the threat was imminent. We know what sweeps look like, and they posted those notices on every tent. And so when that happens, they basically physically remove people and their things. Yes. So Whatever you, you can't carry. Whatever you can't carry was taken. Yeah. So we said, we sat down with all the 168 folks there, and we said, what do you guys want to do? If you want to stay here, we'll get arrested with you. Like, we're here to support you. Because they, they were served a notice on the yep. tent that said, we're going to get you yep. guys out of here. And you're going to be arrested. You either go or we're going to take you. Or they're going to arrest okay. you. Gotcha. Can't, can't and so there. you guys went. Yeah. So the camp decided they wanted to leave because like, they like were afraid. next day? How many hours? Oh, no. 24 hours. We had the 24 camp hours. Down. You had the whole it place It was clean. Down. Wow. Everyone was moved. And the only place we could find and in December in the cold is that washed out property because there were already people experiencing homelessness living on that property already. Okay, gotcha. So we didn't, we have other camps. There's other encampments in Spokane. Yes, there are. We didn't want to take the 168 people to that encampment because that encampment was doing okay. Where is that encampment? There's one in the valley and we had one up north okay. at the time. So the one in the valley was also on washed out land. Where was that? Um, on Trenton Waterworks. Okay. And it's still there. It's been there for three years. Okay. Huh. So we didn't want to... And the one up north? Um, it was the pig farm, which was out in Mead. Okay. And we eventually moved every camper off of that property okay. gotcha. and got them into something different. Okay. But we, we were afraid of bringing that many people into an influx into a camp. Like 
in the middle of the winter. That's only going to bring attention to them. And then it brings law enforcement and these folks were doing okay. So we just picked the spot where there was people already living and we pitched tents there. So, so at this point, have you already formed as a nonprofit Jules Helping Hands? You you had to sort of form to be able to, to formally do some things for people. Yeah. We formed a nonprofit in 2019 simply to run the Cannon Street Shelter. So we had, we had bid on the grocery outlet building. So the city had decided at this point they needed a giant shelter and they didn't have an operator to run it. So they reached out to the community and were like, well, we can't do any worse than anybody else. Like, let's right. try it. Okay. Gotcha. And so it was originally going to be in that grocery outlet building. And the city pulled together a neighborhood counts, a neighborhood group because they did exactly what they're doing now, which is not talking to the neighborhoods. And it was really a lynching mob. The, there was no conversation to be had. It was people very upset at the transparency of the city. And so the shelter never happened there. It's now at 55 East Mission. But after that, what that's what happened. The good stuff is what happened afterwards. So come the winter again in 2019, they had no warming centers planned, of course, because we do what we do every year, which is go, oh, it's October. We need to do something that's going to get cold. And they did that again. Weird. Every year it seems Every to year, happen. same thing. And so they called me up and they said, you know, I know you've never ran a shelter, but we have $740,000 in our budget. That's all we can use. Can you run a shelter on that? And $740,000 was a lot compared to... more than to, zero. Yeah, compared we were to doing we it were anyway. already doing it. Right. I was like, yeah, we'll do it. So we opened that up and COVID happened in the middle of it. And so we had to do things differently. So we ended up opening up a second shelter for the city, which was at the library. And in that time, the city was going through mayoral changes. Sure. So yeah. we started out here with David Condon, and then we moved into Nadine and during that time it happens what always happens when we get a new mayor is everything changes sure we disrupt everything and we start a whole new policy that's that's just that's just how government is yep so nadine's policy was not to have shelters anymore so on the night before it was supposed to close and we were not closing because of covid they wanted to extend it city council had already put in (coughs) the paperwork to do it we got a call at 8 30 that night and said we're closing down the shelter tomorrow And I said, okay, well, what's the plan for the 146 people that are here? And they said, we don't have one. And at that point, what was I to do? So I went to every place in town and I bought every tent we could buy. And we set up a tent city in Coeur d'Alene Park. (laughs) Didn't go over well. But what it did do was... In Brown's edition. Yep. It did buy some time for the folks behind the scenes to start calling and calling the governor and calling the attorney general and saying, this is a stay at home order. Like we need to have a space for these folks. And a lot of people came together to advocate on behalf of that shelter to keep it open. The only recourse that the city had was to take the shelter away from me, which is okay because they remaining, the beds remain there. That's and good. that's what mattered that's was right. the people still had a place to stay. It doesn't matter who runs it. It just mattered that they had a place to stay. So we bowed out as civilly as we could. We didn't take anything with us. We left that shelter the way that it was with all of our things in it so that our friends 
could stay there that night. We didn't want it to be a week or two weeks or three weeks while they remodeled in construction and added beds. We just left everything that we had had there. We stocked up their refrigerators, we stocked up their freezers, and we handed them the keys. Well, so kind of fast forward to Camp Hope. That starts moving in December. It's 168 people, and it doesn't stop. It's never stopped since that day. We filmed our episode, I think, in June, May or June, something like that. And there's 350 people there. By the time the episode got kind of came out, there's over 600. It's over 600, and and and, uh, maybe it's stabilized a little bit now, but it's probably 650. It's it's getting close. Yeah. Yeah, we we can't. The reality is, is they don't have anywhere else to go. Right. And as much as we want to say, you can't be here, we, it's, it's really hard to do that at this point. So give me the, before I jump into kind of today, what, there's some big things that happened today as we film this. Um, what are the, give me some misnomers. You hear people say this about Camp Hope, and it's not true. Tell me the stuff that's not true that people well, say. Well, I'll explain the truth of that. It, some of what they say is true but they don't have an explanation for it so they say that crime has increased around that city block and let me explain to you why if you take the 600 people that are there pick any neighborhood in our city and on each city block there's about 40 houses and let's say there's five people in each house right it would take eight city blocks to house camp hope wow how is the crime different from eight city blocks anywhere in our city as compared to the one city block. We're just condensed it's into condensed. one block. Sure. So has there been an uptick in crime? I'm sure there has. But that's in every city block we have in our entire county. We just have condensed it all into one spot. So that's one of the misconceptions. Mm-hmm. The other is that those folks aren't participating in services. Those folks get more services than any shelter in this town. They have a medical clinic every day of the week. They have Spokane Regional Health Department. They have the Needle Exchange. They have DSHS. They have treatment options and case managers and every service. And food. And food. Three, you want to know why three that Three meals works? a day. Yeah. They have a cooling tent where they can rest and relax. They have people there that, that can be their support system. They have security who helps them get through things. And it works because of who is the provider at the camp. That's why it matters who runs what. I work with everybody from UGM all the way down to the Cannon Shelter. I work with everyone. Anything that benefits our friends, please come and join us because we need you. That's how we've always operated. This is not in politics. I don't care if I believe. I don't even care if I like what you do. I'm not a fan of the UGM. I'm not a fan of their model. I don't love that they have discriminating policies against some people. But here's what I say. They help a lot of people. Yeah. They get a lot of people in and out of homelessness very fast. And we don't pay for them. The city, their taxpayer money doesn't fund those places. Yeah, I think I think all of those service groups, Catholic Charities, yep. UGM, whatever, you know, they have different philosophies about how to do it. But I, they get such a bad rap. They do. Because they're doing the work that has <laughs> to get done. And without really a lot of gratitude, you're doing that. You're yeah. in that same game, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. There's no... Uh, our gratitude comes from the folks who know what we do for them. Right. Our... Here's the reality of Camp Hope. I have zero authority on that camp. That lot belong, does not belong to me. And I can't move anybody or enforce any kind of rules there whatsoever. Right. Yet they maintain there, 600 of them. 
because of relationships that we've built. When you talk about people coming to give stuff, so people can give, right? And, yeah. and can help you. What, what do you need? Men's items are always the, the most important. It doesn't have to be new or money. We need men's clothing, men's underwear, men's socks, because we're also the only free shower outside of a shelter in our county. We run the only community-funded co-ed day center. And where can people drop that? How do they get it um, What's the best way? Our building, the day center, is at 1819 East Springfield. And if you don't want to go there, you can go directly to the Camp Hope because we run the cooling center across the street. And that's also doubles as an access center. So there are service providers and medical staff there, but there's always Jules Helping Hands employees who will be happy to take any donation you bring and a whole lot of folks that need everything. So one of the you know, cool parts of doing this show has been, you know, the, you, you hear people say things about you, you hear things, people say things about Hello for Good, which is, you know, Chris Patterson and yep. Katie Brie and um, funded by Washington Trust Bank, really trying to do something on the business end and to get, they've collected, you know, 100, 100 business people or more, maybe 150 that are saying, hey, we want to help yep. figure this out. But, they, you know, if you if you watch the media, you yeah. two are pretty pitted, yeah. you know. And and again, seventy uh, percent, in my opinion, this is my own opinion, just having listened to both of you and interviewed you both, that you you kind of agree. I, I was I was telling Gavin Cooley, the host of of the show, I go, you know what? If if we could just put Julie and Chris in a room and give them like you know two days, they yep. come out with a solution and we just do what they say, this would work. I really yep. truly believe that. I believe that You too. both are amazing. So I got this, one of the best moments, I was in Colorado filming and I was at dinner and I get this um, in, in in Steamboat, not far, far ah, from, yes. from Grand Junction, where are you from? And um, I get this text from Gavin that says, hey, can you call Chris Patterson? Can you, can you, can you send me Julie's number, Julie Garcia's number, Chris Patterson wants to talk to her. Yeah. I'm like, that's so cool. Yeah. Like, you know, I don't know how much you guys talk. Maybe you do all the time, but he didn't have your number. So, so I'm, and Gavin's like, I can't do this. Can you actually send it? So I text Chris and I'm like, yeah, here's Julie's number, you know, like anything I can do to help, you yeah. know, what, what's going on? He goes, well, I want to bring some water. You know, I, I got a bunch of water and I want to drop it off there. And I'm like, that is so cool. Like it's yeah. just, no matter what, this, this is not for anybody to know. I'm telling this, and Chris probably would hate me telling this, actually. Maybe he would. No, he probably doesn't care either way, honestly. But but I, I said, well, he, that's really cool. Yeah. And, he, and then he said, oh, she hasn't gotten back to me. You know, it won't happen. And then I said, well, if you do get to meet her, would you, get, would you at least get some photos of yep. you dropping this off or some video? We could use it in the show. And he's like, I'm not looking for any of that. I don't want any grand anything, right? Um and so I'm like, ah, I guess it didn't happen, you know. And then a half hour later, an hour later, yeah. whatever, I get a text and it's a picture of you two together. Yep. You know, you know, arm in arm, shorts, 100 degree because yep. it was a really hot day. And he had a bunch of his, you know, his community and his friends bringing a ton of water for you guys. And I'm like, nobody knows that. That's not in the paper. Yeah, no. It's not on the news that night. No, nobody because saw it doesn't that. sell stories. Yeah, it doesn't that's, sell stories. That's, that's the thing is I really believe 90% of our community – wants a solution and help. Oh, we're missing 95. Yeah, we're missing <laughs> this tiny bit of education. So and what are people what are we missing? We're missing the way that taking facts and opinions and separating the two. What are the facts? What's so? And what are the opinions? So the opinions are if these folks don't want to work, 
they're lazy, that we gotta, we, we gotta stop handing them everything. Brother, they live in a tent at the side of the freeway. Like they eat whatever food I can gather together That's from insane. everything. Right. Like they're wearing my old clothes. Like this isn't everything. Right. We're just keeping them this alive. This ain't the Ritz. But the facts have created and solved this problem in other areas. If we use scientific data and, and data-driven solutions, we can get there too. Spokane is an amazing community. Here's, no. here's how I know. They have continued to fund us through eight shelters, a day center, and 600 people at Camp Hope, all on community donations. Wow. If commerce gives us money to continue on, that's awesome. But if they don't, guess what? We're still gonna be out there doing this the people who live here with this. the community who is going to continue to help do these things it would just be nice to get other folks on board so here's let me tell you a story about something that happened a year and a half ago out in a winter right in front of the dow jones so i get a call and there's a lady out there with no coat on the community member calls me says there's a lady out here with no code it's snowing it's cold do you have one i don't have one with me can you drop it off and i was driving by i'm like sure i'll get out there so my husband and i we went found this lady and she's laying there and i get out of the car and i go to her and i've never in my entire life felt somebody so cold and unconscious and i grab her into my arms and my husband starts pulling out sleeping bags and I pick her up and I put her on top of me and I get inside the sleeping bag with her and I'm literally breathing into her face, trying to keep her warm. He's on the phone. The ambulance is she's on her way. She's barely, barely breathing. I can feel her pulse, but it's very low and she's probably feels like an icebox. She's sucking all the heat out of me and I'm blowing my as hot of air as I can into her face, just talking to her and this woman died in my arms in front of the Dow Jones Academy in our downtown. And that's a terrible thing to happen. But even worse than that is I heard and watched people step over me as I'm saving this lady and no one stopped. Because I don't know this lady's name. I don't even know who she is. I'm not allowed to know that once they leave, you know, there's HIPAA violations. Right. But this woman died in my arms and I don't know her. And maybe a coat would have saved her. But you know what would have saved her? A bed. Somewhere. Somewhere warm. And from then on, I had to hmm. go, what am I doing here? Am I trying to solve homelessness or am I trying to keep people alive? And I'm just trying to keep them alive. Because there's people who are smarter than me and have better ways to do this that all have to come together. Because if we don't come together, Another lady just like her is going to die in front of our city and we're going to, in our heads, justify that that's okay because they're shelter resistant or because they have mental health issues or somewhere down the line they should have learned how to deal with addiction. I get it. I understand. I work with this population every day and as heartbreaking as it is and as hard of a job you try to deal with 600 people with addiction <laughs> issues and mental health oh, all on one yeah, we lot were just trying to anywhere. film for interview you for you know 45 minutes and you were it was it was chaos, it was chaos. around there it's chaos but that you by the way handled amazingly if we don't if we don't it affects our entire community it's not just 
the people experiencing homelessness. It's the neighborhoods that begin to become so biased towards other people because there's no place for these guys to go. And they don't know that they're being told that there's all these beds yeah. and the reality is there isn't. Right. So if we just get to a place where we're truthful and where we can address the situation, our, both our failures and our successes, like I fail all the time. The only difference is I get back up and keep doing it a different way. And as a city, we have to come to that point. The business owners, the city administration, the city council, these neighborhoods, and we have to say, this is our problem. We have to solve it. Or what's the outcome? Well, and the service providers too. Yeah, they, everyone. They, and, and that's why we went to Houston. Yep. Because we, when we went to Houston, we discovered that they had actually done that. Yep. They got one plan. They got everybody to agree to it. Not everybody was happy. Yeah. Not everybody got to do the things that they did before. Yep. Every, you know, but they put egos away, as Chris Patterson said in our piece. They had to put their egos in check. And they did. Yep. And they were forced to do it because of money and all kinds of stuff that HUD was going to take away from them. Whatever. They discovered a plan that I think is the best one in America. And I do why too. they've been able to reduce homelessness 60, 66% in the last 10 years. And, and you know, they have 3,500 homeless people still today. Yeah. Which is... 3,500 too many. But in Spokane, I bet you, with we your 600. 11,000. Close to 11,000. 11,000? Close to 11,000, yeah. And that was back in 2019. So I was going to say two. What we, what we also did. So back in 2019. I'll explain it to you. Wow. So we have two definitions of homelessness that we use. The HUD definition, which means you're unsheltered tonight. Okay. And what we use for children, which is the McKinney-Vento Act. And that is, you don't have a stable place every day to go home to. They consider that homeless. And our, HUD does not. HUD says if you have a roof over well, your head I, today, the, you're I see. not homeless. What I don't know, so I'm just talking about what HUD says. What, yeah. what HUD says, you know, they started with 10,000 or 25,000, and now they're down to 3,500. Yeah. But this is the fourth largest city in America yeah. now, fourth or fifth, depending on how you look at it. Spokane is not. No. <laughs> okay. But we're, we have equal we're not numbers even, of people we're, we're experiencing even, homelessness. Yeah, we're, we're half a million at best, right, in the county here. There's got to be 2,000 people currently living on the street here. Yeah, in, in just our city? Yeah, just our definitely. City. I, mean, I can right? tell you, I touch what do you hands think with about 2,200 people a 2,200. Yeah. That's about so We have 2,200 and we're 450,000 people. They have, you know, they're the fourth largest city in America and they've got 3,500. Yeah. So, I mean... It's just trending wrong, right? Well, and the economic models, if you study them, because that's also what I do, so I know how things work. I'm data-driven and scientific-driven. I want to know what's working, what's not. The economic models say in the United States, over the entire United States, homelessness will increase 49% for the next three years, which doesn't sound so crazy. It's like it's, oh, it's only 49%. That sounds, but, like, that sounds crazy. But <laughs> that's a lot. Forty nine percent in two thousand twenty five looks like thirty seven thousand people experiencing homelessness as compared to what we have now. That's gigantic. And how do you solve that? That's where these big cities, and especially Houston, that did it. That's why it's so amazing, is because of how much they've reduced homelessness. Because I've been to Seattle, and I literally was overwhelmed. Just by the sheer number of people, like, where do you start? Yeah, they, they, where exactly. Where do you even begin? I know, that, 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 you know, tiny home village there, I loved. 
it was it is a really good solution but i thought drop in the bucket for seattle yeah and and i may be wrong but it, it's definitely it's starting and it's it's important there but here it would be ginormous here right? it, would be it would be a huge impact to get 50 gigantic. to 100 people off. you want to and see think visible that, homelessness increase decrease and that's what the community wants to see because they don't right. really know right, right, right. the real numbers so they right. want to see the visibleness of it decrease correct if you camp so Say we just take just the numbers that we know are there. We've counted the 1,500 that the city says we have experiencing homelessness. 600 of them live on one lot right now. Right. You have their sole attention. They are willing and ready to participate. They're showing you that They're, by maintaining on that property. Right. This is more than they've ever done. Right. You said that in the in the in the second episode that we put out. You know, these are the maybes. Right. Yeah. They're, they're, they have taken a step. Yeah. What What about and, and Chris, who works for me, I asked him. You know, uh, my team today. What What would you want to ask Julie? Because they've been a part of this. You know, they've been really close to it. And his question was, "What about the people downtown? Why are they not at Camp Hope? Can they not get there? Is there no room? Do they not want to?" So Camp Hope had two did two things. One, it showed how many people are experiencing homelessness in our county, but it had an unintentional consequence, which was it left behind the folks that aren't the maybes yet. They are folks ready. that are struggling with severe addiction and severe mental health. So we actually didn't help make the downtown safer by taking everybody out. We actually made it more unsafe there huh. because we've left behind those folks. And it's not that we want to leave them behind because I think that this can be replicated in a structured environment, but they need a more structured environment than even Camp Hope. And... And that's saying a lot because we do have some rules at Camp Hope, like you can't openly use. So that takes people who have co-occurring issues like mental health and addiction. They don't even understand what so that So people looks are like. using, there's clearly they're using yeah. there, but they're, they're, if they're using, they're inside their own tent. Either inside their tent or somewhere else. Somewhere else. So what we've asked them is there's no open use. I don't want to walk through the camp and find needles because there are people in recovery there that that's not fair to. There's no assaulting another person. And we are attempting to be good neighbors. So those are the three things that the camp asks, not what I ask. I, I don't make Everybody the rules for Everybody sort of agreed to the rules. They've agreed to those rules. And those are the rules. If you want to stay on that property, this is what you need to do. So, the, the, you know, I try to, my job of telling a story is this is so complex. And I do a lot of taking complex things and making them simpler. And if I get it, everybody can. You know, mm -hmm. anybody gets it. And, and I, the big the two big takeaways that I've had from this that I didn't know before I started this project was, especially at, especially at Camp Hope, was they, they're there because they want to shut their door. Yeah. And if, if they go to a shelter, they lose their stuff. Yeah. And we had an amazing story that's in, in the episode that I hope people watch. Um, this couple, Shanti and Joseph, that you brought to us that were really very brave to be in this. Yeah. And shared a lot and whew, hard for me to still think about you know being there and hearing their story and all that they've gone through um and, and it's really is moving i mean what they're what they're going through but you know what broke it down for me was that you know w the gift that we got in their interview i think in terms of telling a story is about their son they they yeah. both lost a, they lost a child at 18 years old when they were together and they've been together since they were 15 these yeah. two through hell and high water. Yep. I mean, literally. <laughs> and they still have the ashes of their child, their son, 
in their urn, which is their most prized possession. And that looks valuable, um, Shanti told us. And if they go to a shelter, they could lose that. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the reality of shelter life is there's only a certain amount of space in a shelter. And you told me today, because today is the first day that the shelter is open, right? The yep, new shelter that's right. yep. on Trent. And, and you did everything you could, you say, oh, we to let everybody. So you let everybody at the camp know this is open, right? Yep. What, what, what happened? So you put a sign up. What'd you do? We, so we put out a weekly flyer telling them the updates on what's happening towards going towards housing, what needs to be done. That's the only way we can get to all 600 is that flyer. We've put them out for two weeks now. The last week and a half we've and, put and two people out. read them yeah oh yeah ever they come pick them up we tape them to their tents they read them they everybody ask questions gets one. yep and it said here's beds available trent shelter's opening please be here we're gonna we'll help you get through there we tried talking about it we talked about it in our security meeting this week and four people went to the trent shelter and two we forced to go today yeah that's it the bus stayed out, out there all day 650 yeah the bus stayed out there all and, day. And the number one reason is because they don't have a door to shut. That's correct. They, I have mental illness too. I suffer with trauma and PTSD. I, I've been raped twice in my life and been in situations that I put my own self in and some that I didn't. It doesn't matter. I have the same trauma they do. I could never bring myself to sleep in a room with 250 people I didn't know ever. My body and my brain would not allow that to happen. I, I wouldn't either. Yeah, most people wouldn't. <laughs> no. So what I always tell everybody is I'm like, here's how we have to get what we have to get to in our community is what you want for you and your family. You should want for others and their family. Right. If you can't stay in that shelter and you can't sleep on that mat on the floor, why are they needing to stay on that mat on the floor? Right. Can we not provide something better than a mat on a floor? Right. Can we provide something better than right. putting you all in a warehouse like, how does that help anyone's mental health? Well, and, and, and they're just going to go back on the street anyway. And I've ran shelters. Right. So I know. And I've ran good shelters. But they still don't have an out. There's no out so because in, in there's Houston, nowhere to go. In Houston, they if you're in a shelter, they consider you homeless. So they do not. There are shelters in, in Houston. People do go to them. But they don't count you know, as housed. Because they're not a house. Yeah. And so the other thing that I learned really about the, the, the biggest takeaway from Houston were a couple of things. But the first one was um, the cost, which is why Gavin Cooley is the host of our, of our show, because it's, it is all about money. Yeah. And, and the big misnomer that it will cost us a lot to take care of these people. The reality is it's costing us five times what it should cost us right now by yeah. doing absolutely nothing for so them. So if you want to look up something that will demonstrate that and give you, you can look up a story on any Google called Million Dollar Murray. And Million Dollar Murray, they tracked how much he cost the taxpayers of their city to not house him. In Reno. In Reno. One million dollars. I just A year? Uh, and it was over a, I believe, a five to seven year period. Okay. I'm not yeah. sure exactly. Right. But it still cost him. So I was at at Camp Hope today and we had to evict somebody that was there and we called in the police and we're talking with the police and the firefighters because they came to assist us and he says you know that it costs around thirty to forty thousand dollars a year to house somebody at the jail yeah I understand that right. he's like how That's much 50. yeah how much does this cost 
And I said, well, not 30 to $50,000 a year. But he said, do people realize that if we got them housing, the police calls would stop? The, the fire stop. department calls would stop? Did did we? No, do, they don't. Nobody realizes no, they this, don't. that and we I didn't are costing that. the taxpayers yes. an immense amount of money. Right. In Houston, they say, in Houston they say if you are currently homeless, you're costing the city in fire and emergency room and all of the all the costs that it costs that we pay for. Yep. Ninety six thousand dollars a year. That makes sense. If you are housed with services, seventeen thousand yep. to eighteen thousand. Yep. Now it's probably more here because they got their act together. Yeah. You know, I would guess that it's here it's way more. It's gotta be because over we I, I, we red light at the jail, which means they can't even bring anybody in. So we have all these folks that they have on a list that they want to arrest. So they don't arrest them because we don't have any room. At least that's what they say. And then they come out and they arrest everybody. And where's the return on that? Because they can't right. keep them there. They end up becoming, still being homeless when they get out. There's no services that help those folks. And there's no place to go once you exit. It's the same with the shelter. Right. We have a 0.01% housing in that, the city. I mean, that's the problem. It doesn't really matter right. where. And it's not, everybody thinks, oh, well, we need to just build low-income housing. No, we need to build every kind of housing. We need market-rate right. housing because our economy's always been trickled down. How am I going to move out of my apartment into a house if there's no house? Right. And then my apartments never becomes open, so nobody actually gets out and right. moves there's into no, it. There's no movement. And yeah. just we have to have every kind of option and every kind of door open for everybody to get in. Yeah, and that's a bigger issue. That's zoning, and that's yep. all kinds of stuff that, that allows them but something like that to happen. But that's what happens when we all work together. And we start talking about yes. it. Yes. And that, that's really the, the number one kind of goal of, of Housing and Help, the series, is to get conversations going, yep. to meet somebody like you. Well, you do a good job at that. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm, it's really, it means a lot that, every, that people at the camp liked it. Yeah, mostly. they loved it. I mean, uh, that they watched it is incredible. Well, and uh, you just, showed their life without judgment. You let them tell their story the way that they see it through their lens. And that's what they want. What do you want? When you want to tell your life story, you want to tell it the way that you feel it happened. There's a, there's a, there's a moment in there that Shanti and, and Joseph, um, who are in the, in the uh, series, talk about uh, that it's war. Yeah. It's war there. People yeah. fight over socks. Yep. They fight over stuff. And I, you know, I really wanted that to be in there because... Yeah. Because when you hear their story, they're really grateful to be there yeah. because it was so much worse before. Yeah. But to think that this is great, they don't want to be there. Well, this Nobody is a solution wants to be there. for You no don't one. want to be there. I don't want to be there. <laughs> no, I, know you don't. I want nothing more than to put them in to better situations because this is overwhelming for anybody. It, it, it's a lot. Yeah. But... It's better than the situation they came from. So that should tell you a lot. Right. Seeing how there's 600 people trying to right. fight for the 200 mils every night. Right. And, and the amount of stuff this community can donate. Because we don't invest in our community. And investing in our community means helping these folks into better situations. And it costs money. It costs a lot of money. But it costs less than what we're doing now, which is just moving them from place to place. Right. Um, so if you got, I, I ask this question a lot of people. Um, if you if you got a magic wand and you could wave it, what would you have happen? I would create 
a community like Houston's created. Because here's the reality. We could take all these folks and we can get a market rate apartments with the money that we're spending at the shelter. So we could do that. Oh, I mean, it's a, you know, if you put somebody in jail, it's $135 a night. You can put them in a hotel. Yeah. We could <laughs> just know? get market I mean, rate apartments for $2,000 well, I mean, a shelter, month. How much does the shelter cost? Um, be any, so we don't really know the real cost. It's okay. anywhere from $2,000 to $3,000 per month. Per person. Per person. Okay. So I mean, market so rate apartment. Get them an apartment and give them some money for food. Here's the problem. That doesn't, that's not the answer. That doesn't solve anything. Right. They need wraparound services. They right. need peer support. They need permanent supportive housing. They need something more than just... Here's your key. Bye. You deal with it. The other the other thing that we learned about a lot about was mental health, and that that you know when I was when I was a kid, this wasn't here, and there was also Eastern State Hospital that had a lot of yeah. people in it that really they just let out onto the street and are now experiencing homelessness. There's a big portion of the population that this 30 years ago would have been at Eastern State Hospital, yeah. correct? Well, we just removed one from our camp that came from Eastern State Hospital, and. We have exhausted all of our options in helping him. We don't have right. an option. And, and we as a community, as a, as a country, really stopped doing that. It made a limit on, I think it's 16 people that are allowed to go. Yep. Is that the number? Can you, can you explain what that is? Because there is somewhere between too many people that, that are not giving care, and it's you know the one flew over the cuckoo's nest sort of yep. scary story, and so, too few that it is now. Yeah, and and honestly, the the county doesn't have the dollars to do it because yeah. the they we've stopped investing in that. Yeah, where would you put it? Well, mental health and addiction services. There's no beds. Like we can have a guy who wants to get sober today. We don't have a bed to put him in. Right. Like there's no treatment beds available, and we've created so many barriers to those beds that how do you get people into them who just come up off the street and say, hey, I need to stop using today. Sweet, let's get you somewhere. I'll stop what I'm doing. Let me take you. We don't have that place. It's not there. Yeah. We don't. And, and we, Houston, we haven't invested there. in that. And in Houston, that is there. And there are navigators. Or there's yep. a person like you assigned to 10 to 20 people. And their job is to get them out of the tent, to get them into housing, to get services with them. And, that the, and they know once those people are, are into their system and into housing, that after two years, 92% of them are still housed. Yeah. That's the sustainability well, that's what we need. right? Yeah. <laughs> because so otherwise, they're just going to come right back that. out. Family Promise has navigated that model. So for six months, they were at functional zero. And what we call functional zero, their shelter was there. It meant more people were leaving homelessness than people coming in. And the way that they did that, and I asked them, is how, what happened? What changed? And he said, we started saying yes. We started breaking down those barriers and saying, oh, you do need $20 to fix your car because that will help you stay out of homelessness. We have to stop putting those barriers. Oh, well, they're just going to use it for drugs. Well, maybe they are, but maybe they're going to fix their car, which then helps them get to work, which then helps them maintain their house, which then helps their mental health. It's a chain reaction. We've got to stop placing barriers and start breaking those down. Are there people at Camp Hope who are working? Yes, lots of them. That are holding down a job? Of course. Then we have people that work at the mobile station next door. And two ladies that work at Fred Meyer across the street. We employ some of them. And we run a second chance employment program. So we navigate that through the downtown in the hospitality industry. The one good thing about my husband is that he is the CFO for a restaurant group. And they're always needing that entry-level oh, cool. position. So we've got...
got them to lower their barriers for employment to two things. You're not currently using and you're not a registered sex offender. The two things that they can't get their insurance to pay for. And because of that, we've successfully got people jobs. We moved them out of homelessness because of that employment. That's awesome. And it's just lowering barriers. Like, why do we need to have all this crazy stuff to hire at an entry level position? Do you want an employee or not? Right. And if you do, we'll get you one and we'll work with them to be the employee that you want them to be. The other two big stats that we feature in the, in the first episode of this, our second episode, but the one about you guys, is um, that uh, of the 601 counted in July, um, two, uh, only 50 would go to a shelter. Yep. Um, of the 600 that were there, all 601 would go to a tiny home or a pallet mm-hmm. home to be able to shut their own door. That is still the truth. Still the truth. And, and only two had proper identification, a social yep. security card and, that is and, a, as and well. an ID. That, that is amazing. And that's, that when we went to Houston, we, in, in an upcoming episode, you'll see kind of how their system works. But they essentially, they, that, that's a big part of what they do yeah. is they have people on site <coughs> that get your mail, that, that wash your clothes, that get you services, and that are actively looking and working to get you your ID. Because without yeah. an ID, you can't get a home. Nope. You can't get housing. You can't get a home. You can't get a job. You can't get, you can't get, you can't get a permit. You can't get a permit. You can't cash a check you. for a job <laughs> right. if you were to get paid for There's one. no runway. No. And you you're right, and you're right back things. up, right back on the street. Yep, you gotta have them. How what, how many do you think of these people? Let's say three three years ago, are are there because it's definitely they found no place to live anymore. It's home. It's just because of they couldn't afford the apartment anymore. Maybe about a quarter of them wow. are newly homeless that just could. We seen a ton of it happen during COVID. Yeah. We saw a ton of families who were you know that paycheck away. And we didn't realize how close some of us were, my own self included. Like, how close are we to living in that tent? We're a paycheck away, you're a broken car away. We have a gentleman that works, I just hired him on today, and his name is Chris. And during COVID, his car broke down and he couldn't get to his job. And his job didn't think the bus was reliable enough, so they fired him. And that spiraled within a month in order to not have the eviction on his re- on his record, he made a deal with the landlord that the, he would just leave. And he's been at Camp Hope since. Wow. He worked and maintained housing, doesn't even have addiction issues, no mental health, nothing. He just didn't have enough money to pay his rent. Yeah. And we don't have any safety nets there to keep people housed either. We gotta stop with the rental assistance is such a problem. Rental assistance is keeping them from taking taxpayer money living on the streets rental assistance helps people stay housed we need to help people stay housed we need to help people stay in their well, situation even as we say in, in our show even if you could care less about the humanity of the people out there and that they deserve this yep. some dignity and they deserve a home and all of that stuff if it's just about money it is way less expensive <laughs> if they are in a house. That's what I keep telling them this, these neighborhood councils that I talk to. I said, even as if you as hate people experiencing homelessness, if you hate them, hate their existence, don't agree with why they're there, you think it's bullshit, you don't want to pay for them, got it. I can expect, if that's your opinion, I understand it. It still how makes more is sense. It, how is, how it? is it more financially responsible to just leave them out there? It's, it's not. not. It's costing it's you five times as much. Absolutely not. And it's causing, not only does it cost us in taxpayer money, it costs in in crime just people trying to get food. Right. Like the, 
a lot of the crime that you see is people stealing food. Right. Why do we live in a country that we waste more than we use and we have people that are hungry? That's dumb. Yeah. We need to we need to fix that. Yeah. We need to fix why do we have all these empty buildings in our city and people are living in front of them. Open them up. Do something. Do whatever it is that you do. Do it together with everybody else. Just participate because that's the only way we get out of this. What have you learned? Oh, Top three. I learned that I have a lot more patience than I gave myself credit for. <laughs> I've also learned that human suffering is all of our problem. It's all of our issue. We all are in the same boat. Just because your suffering looks different than my suffering doesn't mean it doesn't feel the same. And I also learned that if we don't do a different way, the impact that it's going to have is beyond anything that we're gonna be able to control at a later date. Whether it is just the amount of people or it's the attitude in which we have to serving these people or if it's our children are watching and we're showing them how to do things. Those are the things that I've learned during this. It's yeah, th this is going to get way worse if we don't do this now. This is, this is worse. manageable. This is, this is figure outable. This can be fixed. Yes. We can, we can turn this around and we can we, make this an amazing model. Yeah. Or we cannot do anything. When and I it gets worse. When I finished, we finished the first episode, I called you and I sent it to you. And I said, I just want to know what you think. And, and I remember, I was like, hey, how you doing? You know, and you're like, I don't know how much longer I can do this. Yeah. And that was a month ago. I have lots of those days. Yeah. Yeah. There's I just bet some you days do. where you, you just walk in and right. there's 600 people that need things and you're seeing people suffer in ways that they... How are you, how are you doing it? I guess just my way. My way is a little bit different than everybody else's <laughs> because... Everybody else thinks this You're is their just job. Stubborn, Julie this Garcia. is their job. You know, <laughs> they go to work in nine to five. A job means that it ends at some point. You're going to end and you're going to go yeah. on to your life. This is my lifestyle. I have this um, thought, just having been through all this, I shared it a little bit before, but I, I, I feel like I have a good friend who was on a podcast that will be coming up soon um, that we recorded not long ago. His name's Alan Giebel, and he lives in Singapore. And he grew up in Spokane. And we talk, started talking about this issue. And he has lived there for 30 years and kind of still American as, as American can be, but has a view of this country in a different way now, yeah. right? And he sees it and he's really kind of sad by it. And I said, Al, what would you do, you know, to fix kind of what you see from afar, just having, you know, been stepped away from it? And he said, I would, I would institute a national um, service program. 18 to 20 years old, you've got to go through national service no matter who you are, where you are. Because it, and, and put, and, and I, if I got to be in charge of that, if I could <laughs> wave my magic wand, I would take that army and I would help them on this issue. I would help, I would help train them in, in both behavioral health and, yep. and addiction services and just be on the ground as navigators to help people through it because it's going to take an army to do it. It does. It does. And it, it takes people to come from places of understanding and you can't understand if you've never experienced it. If you've never experienced it, you never seen him. I spent all of my life in this town for the last 20 years of my life. And I, you get in this, we tell our kids this, Stay in your own lane, mind your own business, don't, don't worry about what other people are doing. We tell this to them from the beginning. We never look over to see what our neighbor's going through. Right. We don't know who our neighbors are that live in our, is our neighbor okay? These are our neighbors. Right. Whether they're experiencing homelessness or the guy that lives next door to you, they're still our neighbors. And what we have to get back to is seeing them, hearing them, experiencing every person that comes out to that camp 
and spends a day touring with me, their minds are changed. Definitely. They never go and say, oh, I still believe that they're just addicts who don't deserve anything. Right. They truly see the humanity and that's what needs to be seen. And there's a leadership that can do that. We, we just need the right leadership to bring our community together, just like they did in Houston. This is what we're going to do. We can promise you it's not, we can't say it's gonna be perfect in the answer, but we're gonna do the best to make it not impact your life. And that's what our leadership needs to do. The other thing that gave me hope is when I called you about this this episode, the Camp Hope episode, and it's like, it had you, you know, called you to say it's ready for you to see before we launched it. I said, how you doing? And you're like, I'm pretty good today. Yeah. You know, like, and you told me that you, and this was just last week, Friday, I think, um, or Thursday, you, you said, uh, I think we can do it. I think we can get, I think that we can, see if I'm saying this right. <laughs> I think we can get all 600 people placed somewhere and get them, get them in a better situation, get them out of Camp Hope that we I can disband it. How do you do it? How, how, how's it going to happen? And I know that Catholic Charities... Place... Catholic Charities will help. That's a, that's a good start. So when we say that, we mean... The Catalyst Project, which is the quality in with the 100 beds. That's permanent. going to be permanent supportive housing, I think, Catholic Charities. On Sunset Hill. Yep, that'll work for some of our folks. And you're going to get 60 to 80 people. Yeah. That's 10% yeah. or more. And what that's going to do in turn is they're going to see their friends, their peers getting housing. Oh. So it's going to motivate a lot more people. And I truly believe we're going to have some kind of tiny homes or pellet shelters somewhere. And that's going to get the rest of them. And that doesn't mean we stop there, that these pellet shelters up, oh, we're putting them here and we're leaving them here. No, this is years longer that we'll be able to start placing them. But once their basic needs are met, and once they have a plan and a goal, we can move forward. And as long as our plan and goals align with what their plans and goals are, we can get them out of homelessness. And I truly am a firm believer that if we do this right, and I'm staking everything I have in it, because this is their only chance, brother. Like this yeah. money doesn't come along no. for these for the chronically homeless population. It's why I'm so defensive about how that money's spent is because they they believe and I believe. We've all people experiencing homelessness that can't believe that if we do it right, we can house all six hundred people and it can be replicated. Right. And we could do it again with right. the folks downtown. Right. And we could teach other it's cities. Ha it's to happening do at it. Gonzaga Haven. Yeah. There's some people that have it's an amazing program Catholic Charities has done where oh, people it's are coming. Gonzaga it's Family Haven is probably one of the most that's, beautiful projects I've ever that's seen. That's a model, right? Yep. For what this could be, right? Yep. Which is taking people that were previously homeless. Got, you know, in many cases, they were families put back together through the Rising Strong program, which yep. is the dad is usually separated from the mom yep. and the kids. They actually put them together. They heal them over a year. It takes a while. Yep. But once they are healed, they're, they're sober, they're stable, they have jobs, they're, they're back together as a family. They move them into, into Gonzaga Haven. They're getting incredible assistance there from Gonzaga Prep, especially every day. Yeah. Those kids are over there all the time. Gonzaga University and G-Prep kids that are just there to help and an incredible model for those kids. I mean, it's a really... Well, and you want to know what else they did that's amazing? Is they put market rate apartments in there. So here's the thing. If you only see people that struggle, you don't learn a different way. That's right. But if you see people who aren't struggling and they're a support system, you get out of homelessness. They're your inspiration. They are it. They are peer support is a hundred percent. The most important thing that we could ever do for these folks is give them somebody to model, 
teach them like walking alongside who's better to teach them how to get out of the situation than the folks that have already clawed their way out of it us us lived experience folks there's very smart people that work in our city that work in some of these organizations but they've never been homeless and unless you've never been in the depths of despair if you don't know what that feels like well, and, and how do you help the army that can help navigate this, navigate people out of it are the people that are at Camp Hope right yep. now. Yep. There's your army. Yep. <laughs> We're going to get them out, brother. We're going to get them out. I know what we are. They have the willingness. This is more but, than but I've ever seen. You can seen. blow through $24 million like that if you're the part, you know, commerce, oh, yeah. commerce is being careful yep. because that money can go quick. Yep. If it doesn't really it do the job. It goes very fast. Yeah. And I'm fast. relying and putting all my hope in folks that that understand because I'm only a service provider and that's really all I want to be is I don't ever want to stop being out on the street helping folks that need things but we need all service providers to do their best work all together and there's not another person in this city and this is an ego driven there's not another person who can motivate these folks like I can oh, that, because I truly sure. love them I, they know this. Our relationships that we've built are real. This isn't just to pretend. I'm pretending that I like you. I'm, I, I might yell at you, and I'm going to hold you accountable, but I love you at the end of the day, and I'm still going to provide you a sandwich. And that's what they need to start the process. I'm only the beginning of the process. There's so many more folks needed towards the end. Jules Helping Hands can't solve homelessness, but we can bring you some folks that are ready. And we'll rely on their skills to get them out of homelessness. Well, thanks for being here and doing this. Thanks well, for I chatting this I appreciate up. you. Your willingness. You are a, you're a hero. Well, I'm a, I'm a something, <laughs> and I hope that I, I I hope that even even the folks that don't like me, even the folks that think I'm just enabling these folks, I encourage every single person in the city and anybody who listens to this podcast, come see it for real. Come talk to How our How can friends. they do that? All they need to do is show up. We have Jules Helping Hands employees there every day who are happy to talk you through it and walk you through it and explain it to you. And where do they show up? Where's the best spot? The cooling tent right across the street from Camp Hope. You can't miss that big monstrosity. Bring stuff. Bring yourself. Bring Come stuff. check it out. But yep. you, need, you, need, you need help. We do need help. We do need help. Bring all your stuff. Bring your old and clothing, your socks, underwear. We take it. My hope is that... This not only happens, but it happens before that snow flies. I hope so, brother. I hope so. Yeah. Thanks, Julie. Thank you. I appreciate you. MIP Podcast was filmed at the studio of Corner Booth Media. Please sure to like, subscribe, and follow us on social media. You can also listen to us on Spotify, Apple Music, and anywhere podcasts can be found. We'd love it if you'd rate, review, and subscribe to help our podcast grow. Be good to yourself and stay interesting. <laughs>